Well, I sort of alluded to it earlier, was the failure of my first foray into digital, you know, setting up the e-commerce business to sell menswear on the internet. And it was just a steady outflow of money and trickle of money coming in. But that was an issue of timing. But what I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't tried that. Hey everyone, welcome back to Key Moments. Today, we've got an awesome guest who is an expert in social media and social selling strategies. With 25 years of experience in the digital space, including 15 plus as the CEO of Volterra, he knows how to make social media work for businesses. He's spoken internationally and has taught social media strategy at the University of Toronto for nine years. He's also the author of Social Media Marketing for Business that came out in March 2022. Andrew Jenkins, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So over the last 25 years of what you've been seeing is there anything that you thought would change that for some reason is just still the same as it was when you first got your start? Well, there's always something new that sounds like such a, uh, a low bar statement. Um, it's always evolving, but ultimately uh, it still comes back to um, new connections. And what I mean by that is when I first was exposed to the internet, I was using things like Gopher and uh, telnetting into NASA and things like that. And that was, you know, just text, making connections, but text-based. And then, you know, as the internet expanded, there were, you know, bulletin boards and things like that. And so you started making connections that way. And then there was chat apps and so on. And then social came out and we started making connections that way. Uh, and it just, you know, we just keep making connections but in, you know, new ways or evolving ways. And, and I, I think that ten, seem, that that's what comes to me when, when you ask that question, um, how things have evolved and um, just in some ways the making connections is easier and uh, we can also now have in, make international connections, global connections, uh, uh, much more, uh, much more easily than we could have been in the mm. past. Right, but it's always it's always been about that. It's just that the medium has has evolved and kind of like changed over time, exactly. which uh, w w which obviously has <laughs> massive connotations from from a marketing context. So, um, I I, I want to I mean for folks who uh, obviously we're we're hearing we're hearing the uh, the intro as well, and they're not just watching like individual clips from this episode. Right. Um, they've heard me say that obviously you've been the CEO of Volterra for quite some time. Obviously, didn't always start that way. So maybe. Take us back to like, you know, your, your, your origin story and, you know, starting from like your childhood, going into like your early career and where you've ended up today. Um, I, I'm just trying to set the stage for folks for sure. the key moments that will come later on. Well, um, you know, there's been different, different career chapters in my life, but the, in some ways they all have, um, built on one another. And by that, I mean, uh, in high school and university, I used to work in, in menswear. Uh, then, but I always had an interest in film. And after I, I got a degree in economics, but the, uh, during that time I studied uh, film studies as an elective. And it just kept compounding my interest in film such that uh, after I graduated from the university, I worked uh, uh, in uh, menswear for a while, but I, I just grew bored quickly and decided to take a stab at the film and television industry. 
worked on some commercials, worked on uh, some film projects, and then I decided to go back to university and get a degree in film production. But when I was finishing film school, one of my classmates was just starting to dabble in the internet and building websites. And it seems so trivial now, but he was showing me some stuff that he was working on and he clicked on the thumbnail picture of a shirt and it got bigger. And I'm just like, hmm, that looks interesting. And so in, in, I started my own menswear company selling menswear on the internet um, in 1995. As I like to say, 1995 BG, before Google. <laughs> and that was my first foray into digital. And, you know, I was learning on the fly, uh, setting up a merchant account, setting up credit, you know, uh, the ability to process credit cards on the internet. And because it was so early, it was really, really challenging. There was no Shopify. There was no Stripe. There was no Square. All these things that are now so... You can be up and running with a Shopify site in a day, and, mm. you know, as long as you're populated with product. Everything that I that you have now at, at you know arm's length, I was either building or doing manually or from scratch. Right. Uh, but you know, t taking all those experiences and lessons, and um, it was too early to be selling menswear on the internet. Then it was too. Uh, process of cross-border shipping and so on and so you know the business just didn't take off to be perfectly frank uh, uh but i took what i learned and i started working for e-commerce startups and i worked through the whole dot-com uh, boom and bust mm -hmm. and saw the upside and the downside and then i uh, decided to go back to school and do my mba and after i finished my mba i Landed a, a role at uh, our Canada's largest telecom, Bell Canada, mm -hmm. and worked there for a number of years in wireless technologies. And then, um, but they, you know, as uh, often happens to so many people, companies change direction and they uh, decided to uh, close my business unit and um, I was packaged out. And I decided to uh, revisit my entrepreneurial um, spirit and started doing uh, consulting in, in strategy and strategic planning. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was that, was that Volterra or before, still before Volterra? Same, yeah, same company. Uh, right. and, um, but the focus wasn't on social yet. It was, it was on strategy and strategic planning, mm -hmm. but through good fortune and a connection that I made over LinkedIn. Uh, I was commissioned to do research on all the predominant social networks at the time, and this was in 2008. And uh, that led to me basically becoming a subject matter expert uh, on social media at the time. And so the focus of the business started uh, morphing towards social, uh, social media solely, um, but then engagements would be going in and doing a social media audit, going in and, and leaving them with strategic recommendations for social. Mm -hmm. But then time and time again, organizations would either not follow the recommendations, follow them poorly or, you know, like minimally or, you know, partially, uh, or they just wouldn't even bother. Mm -hmm. And so, 
started going back to these companies and saying, would you, would it help if we did it for you? Yeah. Uh, if it were, you know, um, presented, uh, you know, in a, in a, um, you know, if it met budget requirements and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And increasingly companies said, oh, would you? Uh, and that's evolved into the core of our business where um, we manage social media on behalf of mid to larger enterprises. Gotcha. You know, that's so interesting because it, yeah. it actually reminds me of, of um, uh, Jamie Jamie Oliver, who's a famous uh, famous chef uh, in the yeah. UK near where near where you are. Right. Yeah. And he's and he's right. Like, what one might think. Hey, why is he giving all his like award-winning recipes and whatnot, like in, in, in books, right? For, for 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 next to nothing, right? Um, and in, in a funny way, it's because, or at least what I'm learning is that people would try the recipes, fail at them, and then become even more so convinced to go to like one of his restaurants, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> it kind of reminds, reminds me of this meme as well that I saw uh, online. I'm not I'm not sure if you've come across it before. But it's the photo of this guy getting a tattoo, and you, you can kind of see him holding a um, a photo of like this um, this like unique... what he's expecting or what he wants, right? Yeah, yeah, and he, it's it's like this really powerful kind of like Herculean like horse or unicorn or something like that, like a muscular kind of unicorn, and you can see the tattoo artist like drawing like pretty much like a donkey on his back or something like that, and so it's like just because someone has access to the uh, the strategy or the the blueprint, as it were, doesn't mean that they necessarily have the capability to make it come to life. So, so I, uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down over there for sure. Well, we act as a, a bit of an extension or additional bend strength. So, our goal is not to come in and make anyone feel threatened, or we're not there to replace any resources they may already have. It's just that when we talk to people in digital marketing, they're, you know working on the website, they're working on an e-newsletter, they're working on a multitude of things. And mm -hmm. so often social is lower down the priority list or they do it when they get around to it. But the problem is that social is on every day and that's where most organizations struggle is maintaining the consistency and frequency that it requires. Yep. So if we come in and say, we're here to be additional bench strength, we're here to be an extension of your team, um, you know, your oversight, your input, um, we're just going to do the heavy lifting for you, um, you know, and, and basically you know, relieve you of some of the burden. And I, I don't want this to sound like a pitch, but that's, I mean, I'm sure you know yourself, there's no shortage of abandoned Facebook pages uh, or, you know, Twitter accounts. They have a tweet once every, you know, six weeks or whatever. I'm sorry, but that's just not, that's not doing social, yeah. uh, you know. That's uh, uh, it's it's an everyday kind of thing, and so if we can um, ease that burden and you know collaborate with what existing resources they have, um, then all the better. Makes sense. So now shifting gears into the uh, the meat and potatoes of the episode, um, we have five key moments, as you know, and I wanted to ask you what is one failure that you wanted to share with us. Well, I sort of alluded to it earlier, um, was the failure of my first foray into um, digital, you know, setting up the e-commerce business to sell menswear on the internet. And it was just a steady outflow of money and trickle of money coming in. 
Um, but that was an issue of timing. Yeah. Um, but what I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it weren't if I hadn't tried that. Uh, that yeah. was you know although it was you know trials and tribulations and you know it hurt me financially. But I'll you know thankfully at the time I was you know, single, not married with children. Um, you know it only hurt a little bit easier. <laughs> It was a modest, um, you know, d a disruption, but, um, you know, compared to, you know, uh, what it could have been, uh, under different circumstances, but that, you know, do I call it a failure? Yeah. Did it, or did it meet my, uh, did it, did I achieve what I had hoped for? No. Did I learn from it? Absolutely. Did it prepare me, uh, or lead me to what I'm doing now? Yes, for am I grateful for that? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, it, you, you mentioned this earlier that like you, you found an opportunity with a with an e-commerce company afterwards, and so that's probably related to like the skill set that you've you've obviously yeah. like developed trying to in the process of like you know launching this uh, this menswear brand. So well, it, yeah, when I started working for the e-commerce software company, I was doing channel management and and you know, hurting resellers and. Then uh, that was the first startup. Then the second startup, I moved into, I was in channel management. Then I moved into strategic alliances. And then when I went, ultimately I later went back to school and did my MBA and then went to Bell Canada, I was hired specifically to handle strategic alliances. Mm -hmm. So it just, you know, my experience just kept compounding and that led to new opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's interesting how, how that always, like, pans out. But, uh, yeah, sometimes, like, something that would be a a failure, you realize that it's something that could not, you could not have achieved your future successes without actually having that thing happen in the first place. Yeah. Um, you, so, you don't know it at the time, but it, it's it's preparing you for something. And, yeah. and the, the, I, often, I say this often to people, it's like, my guidance counselor in high school could not have told me that I would have a career in social media because it didn't exist. Sure. But here I am. <laughs> right. There you go. Um, I have a, uh, a quote, quote, well, a, a thing that I tell myself, I, I don't necessarily say it publicly, but for what it's worth, I just have this thing where I just tell myself, everything is always good, but it's your job to find out why. Um, never actually said that out loud before, but yeah, like the idea is that it's almost like an act of sometimes it's like an art or like an act of creativity where you something happens and you realize you know what i just spilled for instance uh you know like i don't know juice on the floor and maybe this is a good opportunity for me to actually clean the kitchen because it, it needs some cleaning right or <laughs> something similar so it's well i'm at it I'll, i should clean the kitchen well exactly while i'm at it i should probably i should probably clean the kitchen or yeah i think i think it just makes it just makes uh, it, it it makes sense like hindsight twenty twenty things always kind of like pan out. So I guess shifting gears from here, what is one book that really shaped your journey as 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 you were coming up? Well, one of my favorite books uh, from an entrepreneurial uh, perspective uh, was um, Richard Branson's autobiography, Losing My Virginity. Ah. Um, that was you know, his journey from sure uh, with you know Virgin um, Music, then into Virgin Air, and one of the things that always struck me was, whenever he was considering a new en endeavor or initiative, he would you know sort of reflect on, 
you know, if this were to go sideways or fail, or as he put it, as long as I could manage the downside, I would do it. Mm. And, you know, I've never faced some, like the weekend before they were launching Virgin uh, Atlantic, the, the uh, airline, the Air Virgin Air, the weekend before the inaugural flight and they only had one plane, they had a colossal engine failure uh, uh, on the plane and needed to find a Rolls-Royce jet engine worth half a million dollars, which was an absolute ton of money then. And he had about 48 hours to do it. <laughs> and so I said that, and he did it. And, you know, if, if he had, was, you know, like uh, extreme luck or whatever, I just said, then go, you know, uh, if it doesn't kill you, <laughs> it makes you stronger. Yeah. And, and, and anyway, I've just taken so many sort of, uh, things away from uh uh that book uh about yeah you know there will be challenges um and i've i have faced many uh through the 15 years um but i i'm no longer employable as some often entrepreneurs say um it's just yeah. it's not my nature <laughs> and yeah um i have found it too rewarding to be independent so yeah, uh, you, 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 yeah. I mean, you, you and me both for sure. Um, I, I think I read either I've either read the summary of the book or I've read it like ages ago, but I do remember earlier in the book, before way before the uh, the Virgin Atlantic days, he was talking about his very first kind of like uh, venture into the world of entre entrepreneurship, and he created uh, that kind of like high school magazine. I think it was called Student, yeah. and he was trying to get. He was trying to monetize it somehow, so he came up with this kind of like cunning tactic where he, I think he called Pepsi saying, hey, Coca-Cola already bought an ad, are you guys in or what? And then they're like, what? Coca-Cola bought an ad? We're going to buy an ad too. And then he went with the physical Pepsi ad to Coca-Cola, or maybe I switched names, but basically said, hey, here's literally their freaking ad. What, what do you guys have to say about that? And they're like, oh yeah, put us down as well. And that's kind of yeah. where he got his start. Yeah, I, I love it. They have to be creative. And, um, just, you know, figure out, um, you know, be creative with monetization ideas. Yeah. Even when I was in film school, we needed to use one location. We had two different locations we were using for a film. One location said, you don't have to rent our, our facility, but make a charitable donation on our behalf in exchange for using the facility. And then we were using another location that happened to be the headquarters of a global charity. And they said, we don't expect you to rent the facility, but make a charitable donation. So we made a charitable donation on behalf of the first location to the second location. Oh. And, you know, like we were, we were a student production. We had no money, but that's, you know, you, and I'm not, I don't say, say that to pop myself on the back. It's just like, when you have no money, like Richard, Ooh, no money, you come up with some ideas to to turn you know uh, one penny into two. So yeah, I love it, and I think it's it, it's a, like I wish there was a class in entrepreneurship. In I've always like fantasized that like if I ever start, uh, well, you're actually living the dream, uh, working at UFT. But like, if I if I ever had to like my wildest dreams like start some type of like school or something, I would make it like hardcore entrepreneurship focused, where it's like 
in this school, you're going to learn how to make money. And here's your first assignment, like get into like, I don't know, groups of five and here's $10, whoever like turns the biggest profit from it wins kind of thing. And it's just like super scrappy. Um, actually I do, I do have a quick story to share about that. This is super random, but like about a hundred years ago <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was in college, I did an exchange semester or this kind of like culture exchange program from my university here in Ireland. Uh, to to uh, South Korea to a city called um, Busan, and mm -hmm. they actually gave us a very similar kind of thing where they w they would team up folks who were kind of coming from outside Korea with with uh, with our local kind of like buddies. They had like a buddy system, and they basically said, "Hey, you have the whole afternoon. Team that makes most money wins." And I played guitar. My uh, my uh, my buddy, uh, his name is Sean. Shout out Sean if you're watching this. Um, but basically he was a great singer and he, he sang in, in Korean and I just played, you know, like three, four chords. And so we decided we're going to go on the street and basically play, play like some music. And this is where it gets really weird, but it was, it was during summer. We basically decided to make, uh, iced tea. We got this like iced tea mix from the supermarket nearby and we bought blue food coloring to make it appear like it's extra refreshing because it's like nice and blue and cold and everything. And we just combined all these things that don't make any sense together. Um, Egyptian guy coming from Ireland playing guitar with a Korean uh, singer selling blue iced tea on the street in, in Busan. And we didn't win, but we did make some money through tips and stuff like that. And it just taught me that like, right, like when the when the circumstances present themselves, you as a as a creative person, as a, as a creator in general, like you'll figure out a way to to make to make things work. Well, and you probably have a friend who's in PR and he talks about the best ideas win. And, you know, you took a, what might just be considered sort of a, 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 you know, a pretty rudimentary situation and like, let's try, let's approach this a little differently and see if we can, you know, did you win? No. Did you garner attention and, and just, you know, um, the working in your favor, uh, you know, absolutely. The, but you made when you were mentioning entrepreneurship, you made me think of something. So, mm. Before I taught at U of T, I taught uh, entrepreneurship uh, at uh, OCAD University here in Toronto. And it has ties to, it wasn't a book, although I did read it, it wasn't a book that, um, it's important to me for other reasons. And it's called the Bus uh, it's called Business Model Generation mm -hmm. by Alex Osterwalder. And it came out in 2009. And oh, is that, well, that white book that's kind of horizontal? Yes, and in it is the uh, business model canvas, which was later adapted as the lean canvas for the lean startup. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. And when I would uh, use the canvas as a tool with my students, and I I divide them into groups and say, and in, in the book they talk about you know using a cow as the central property. It's like okay for this group. You're gonna the, your business is related to a cow, but it's dairy related. So mm. run with that for ideas. And then this other group, and I apologize to those who have sensitivity or have uh, object to um, animals being used in this way. But you would say to the group for you is you're it's a cow, but now it's byproducts of like leather and 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 so on. Uh, and extrapolate. And but one of the, the the key things that Alex would talk about is 
as you're mapping out your model and so on, your model will be tested with the first customer. Mm. And you, when you think about all the startups you either know of, worked with uh, in some way, how many of them are not doing exactly what they originally set out to do? Yeah, all of them. Because they faced some customers. The customer feedback was, oh, that's, you know, that's a little different. Like Flickr was a gaming site. Slack, you know, was you know, originally a gaming company, but their internal collaboration was, you know, was they had built Slack to collaborate internally for gaming. Yeah, Facebook was meant to be like a dating thing, right? Exactly. So, you know, the original intention isn't necessarily what wins the day. Like I said, you know, for my own company, I started out doing strategy and strategic planning consulting. But uh, time and time again, I would watch clients, um, even stuff they, they had said themselves and committed to, not following through on. And I was like, you know, it just gets uh, tired after a while. So... Uh, anyway, um, for those that are, you know, toying with entrepreneur, uh, endeavors, I highly recommend, uh, losing my fidgetity and business model generation by uh, Alex Oster. Yeah. Yeah. It just so happens that I've, I've, I'm familiar with the two books, so I can, I can definitely attest to their value for sure. <laughs> so speaking of books, you obviously published your own book, yeah. um, not too long ago. What, who was one person around that time that kind of helped that kind of helped like guide you through that through that part of your journey well what had happened so i was in happened to be in the uk and i was meeting with a friend of mine who i was meeting for the first time in person but we had connected over um over linkedin mm -hmm. and he had written a book uh on social selling and i was saying to him that you know i've been teaching this course at the university of toronto for quite some time we have a textbook or a book that we use as the text that I really like, but it's coming up to being a decade old. And I, I said, I'd like to write a book to replace it. That's, you know, more up to date. Um, but because it's a, a book intended to be used in relation to my course, then, um, you know, I want to work with a publisher because they really won't um, allow for self-published books in the context of a university from a credibility point of view. Then why? Yeah, I understand. But third-party validation. So um, he was instrumental, and he introduced me to his publisher. And so I, I went through the process of explaining to the publisher what I was hoping to achieve, and that my book is a combination of not just tips about social media marketing, but also it's meant to be a resource to uh, or for um, folks that find uh, themselves as you know managing or overseeing social media in a mid to larger enterprise, where there's just, it goes well beyond the marketing. It goes on uh, uh, touches on things like social media policy, working with HR, working with legal. And in some ways, to some of them, they're like, well, that doesn't sound very sexy. Very, very true. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it's necessary. Um, you know, have, we do a lot of work in financial services, and nothing goes out on social that hasn't been approved <laughs> and has been vetted by compliance. And whether you like it or not, that's the nature of the process that has to be done 
related to social in certain industries like pharma and healthcare and, yeah, and, yeah. and so that, ha that have regulators. And so I wanted to write a book based on my own experiences in some of those industries that was would prove to be a, a valuable resource to people finding themselves in similar positions to what I'd gone through. Uh, and anyway, that was the, the um, genesis of the book. And I got introduced to a publisher through my friend and, um, you know, six months of writing and uh, yeah. the book. Did it take ages for it to get published once the manuscript was ready, or did you find that it was a fairly straightforward process? Well, I mean, they, they, I mean, they, they're in the business of publishing, so they have a queue of like, so you, I think I handed right. it in, in at the end of July or early August. And it was, you know, I saw the PDF manuscript in like December, but the book was, you know, on Amazon, um, the following March. Okay, well, that that's less than a year, and that's not bad. Because I have a friend of mine who, um, I think she went with Penguin Publishing, and she published a marketing book. She was my uh, my colleague in uh, in, uh, in in HubSpot a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and she had to wait. She the book was done like a year ago, and she had to wait for like at least a year before they before the book was like finally published. So mm -hmm. uh, I know that sometimes. Like, as you said, like it is the business of publishing, and you, you just have to take your turn and kind of wait till, till the book um, comes out. So, yeah. Well, in terms to them, I was late in submitting it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that changes everything. Well, like, I mean, well, there were certain windows that if you finish by a certain time, then you would like so the next window of release. Um, and you know, um, I was you know I had pitched them. Uh, uh, and so, like, this was all during, you know, while we were still sort of closed up uh, for COVID. And, mm -hmm. you know, I talked to f people I knew that were authors, and I'd say, do you write every day a little bit? Do you write in a big chunk one day a week? Like, what's your approach? I try to the, write a little bit every day, but it's a very hard habit to, to stick with. Yeah. Excuse me. But, you know, I ended up lots of Sundays locked in my office uh, for, you know, four more hours and I would crank out 6,000 words. I mean, cause the book ended up being 85,000 words. So, oh, wow. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Um, that, that is, that is pretty, pretty substantial. I think, um, I think most nonfiction books would tend to be around kind of like the 40, 50 K. Well, the, it was meant because they wanted like so. Some of the reasons for the its length, uh, it's about two hundred ninety and change pages. Uh -huh. I because I'm sharing my experiences, but I also go at you know talk about um, you know there's a chapter on considerations you go through about whether you want to outsource or not, uh -huh. um, your approach to tool selection, and you know do you buy a Swiss Army knife type tool that does it all. But there's trade-offs, or do you, you know, build a toolkit, um, th things like that. And then I, I, I would I'd give also like list of tools that I was aware of at the time, and, and a bit of a, like strengths and trade-offs and things like that. So that's where it's a, you know, Richard Branson was writing a book, a business book essentially, but he wasn't getting into the weeds of like, well, here's the latest social media tool at the time. So sure. that's where some of the difference in length comes from. Is uh, I'll call it the resource material. Sure, and I mean, yeah, I, I guess the, the the use case of the book or the the context of the book, I think, lends itself yeah. to that as well. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, what what is one maybe around the time that you started a little bit 
going a little bit earlier now, like when you started Volterra, like what was one decision around that time that you can tell us about? Uh, uh, that, um, like a, an important or critical decision, you mean? Yeah, something that you feel like really kind of set the trajectory to to everything else with Volterra. Um, well, one of the pivotal decisions was to move from projects to retainer. Mm-hmm. Um, to move from, as I said earlier, you know, it would be selling a, a company on, we're going to come in, do a social media audit, and then leave you with some strategic recommendations, and then that would be the, 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 the you know, the extent of a project, and then watch them, you know, flounder or not get it really, you know, rolling. And then moving to, well, instead of us doing a social media audit and as a project, why don't we, you know, do a minimum length engagement uh, where we are on, are on retainer, where there's a bit of an audit and some preliminary recommendations at the beginning, but then we are managing your social with your involvement from, you know, from day one. Uh-huh. And one, from just an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, you get off this cycle of selling a project, you have a revenue spike, and then finishing a project, and then you're back to zero, and then you know, up and down, up and down. So yeah. now having, you know, ideally multiple clients, and basically, you know this, I applied the software as a service model to services. Yeah. Uh, so we are social media management as a service on a monthly retainer. And we either work directly with clients or we get white labeled by other service providers where they bundle our services into a broader um, offering that they have. Uh, and so they're, they're doing a monthly retainer for a whole suite of services and our, our social services are uh, social media related services are embedded in theirs. Right, right. So, um, and and for fo- for folks listening who are trying to get into like who are trying to make the shift from like kind of like our typical project work or like hourly rate kind of work mm-hmm. into more of like a productized service model where the service is kind of like pre pre packaged or let's call it pre configured, mm-hmm. and it it's akin to like having products on a shelf and people can buy them, people can 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 white label them and so on. What, what would you say to these guys? Well, um, I, I was had a friend who was a management consultant and who was you know, advised me early on when I ventured out um, after my time at Bell Canada. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things was he said um, that you should build value-based pricing. So I never um, sold projects based on hours. I said, the fee for this project will be X, and it might be broken out into like some installments um and um also you know but as well like i will not be reporting on the hours because inevitably people gravitate to how many hours this took and they start scrutinizing hours not on the the value or the importance of what you delivered yeah and so can i can i tell you a super quick story about that sure sure speaking of speaking of canada um what i i did that thing in Korea, that was kind of like a, a one-off culture exchange, but where I did my official exchange semester was in Ryerson University in uh, Toronto. And at one point I, I had a, like, I have the perfect example for you just talking about my computer, um, 
was like just was never slower um it wouldn't load anything at all and i just had to go get it fixed and i went to this shop down the road in uh, in bloor street for for folks who who know toronto and it was kind of like at the um, intersection of bloor and bathurst near koreatown and yeah. this shop basically said yeah sure but you got to pay up front i'm like uh sure okay and he was like 45 dollars, which was like fortune for me as a student so i was like okay 45 dollars and he just went out the back. I saw him took out like a, um, you know, that like, um, I don't know the name in English, but like kind of like that, that hose that you use to like pump up like tires and stuff like the, the oxygen. Yeah, it, was just, air. It, was just comp- it was compressed air to clean that. It was, right. Yeah. And he, I, I could see what he was doing. It, he was working at it, Andrew, for like maybe 10 seconds max. And he came, gave, gave it to me after 10 seconds. And he's like, try it. And I was like, oh, it works fine. But you took $45. He's like, yeah, but, but, it, but I solved your problem though. And as a bit, there's a, there's a life lesson for it, but that was a life lesson for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, like it's how, how, what's it worth to you to have your problem solved? No matter how long it takes. I guess $45 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, but so that, that was critical for me to learn was to shift to value pricing. Uh, and then, um, and, and, you know, and I, you know, for me, I, that that was invaluable because it, it changed the, the the conversation. But you still want to make sure that you are delivering value, or that you have a that you have a sense that your client sees what you're doing for them um, as being valuable. Sure. Uh, and you know, um, over the over time, I have increased fees, and every time I increase fees, and someone accepts the what's proposed, that's the new precedent. And so if people walk, say, well, other clients are, are paying that. And so, um, um, and I'm not trying, I, I don't want Volterra to be an agency of record, like these major um, creative agencies or ad agencies like Mad Men, where they get a, an exorbitant um, monthly retainer based on a three-year contract that they have to renew every three years. But I'm also not trying to compete with, um, you know, an, an independent social media manager. There are many, and they're, they're good at what they do. We're try- I'm trying to have Volterra sort of squarely in the middle yeah. um, to be an extension of a, a digital marketing team and, like many entrepreneurs, avoid having to deal with procurement. <laughs> yeah, which is which is a whole other story for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're coming up to the close of the episode, and I was wondering if there's one... If you can tell us one learning from from your journey so far that you can share with our audience, even though before you even say anything, like even though you've already shared so much that I've taken like mental notes of, I I want you to leave us with like one one to think about. Well, I mean, I highlighted the one about you know the, the learning or you know getting the advice from a friend about um, value based pricing, which I think was a, a instrumental. One thing I want uh, to to leave you with is. Um, that I've learned that I, uh, you know, and no disrespect to, to people that have chosen to, uh, the uh, being employed route, I have just found as an entrepreneur and having been an employee and have been, been an entrepreneur, I have found it far easier to replace a client than a job. But it's not without its risks. I love that. I love that. 
um, in terms of like I can I can replace a client far faster than you know landing uh, the next gig. Um, that that I think is is an important takeaway. Yeah, and and just to build on what you're saying, Andrew, like um, I think I talked about this before on this podcast, but um, there is a um, very famous episode of the Joe Rogan podcast with him and uh, Naval Ravikant. And he talks about like the, the future of work at one point where he talks about how, now this is obviously very different from Volterra's model, but yep. just saying that full-time employees working at like one company will be a thing of the past. In the future, you'll wake up and you'll have like an Uber, like kind of like experience on your phone where, you know, like CNN and Disney and, you know, Microsoft and Apple all have like, all, all wish to consult with you. And you're like, accept, accept, accept. And you basically just work for a couple of hours or basically a, sh a short amount of time with these different companies. And you are, and when you're done, you just kind of like switch off. So you're literally switch off in the app. And so you're, you're no longer like uh, tied or chained, right? To like one company, but rather you are a, uh, an independent operator and you consult with multiple companies. You can take on more, take on less and so on. Well, and that's the, our pricing is meant to, like our, the way I position it with clients is our value proposition is enterprise grade tools and methods and an SME price point. Mm, we love that. specifically target our pricing to be less than a full-time headcount. So you're getting an, and again, this sounds like a pitch, but you're getting an agency for, uh, for to run your social media for less than, typically less than the cost of a, one single employee mm. because we have tools which, and which methods. How much? With scale. It can range from two to five thousand dollars a month, depending on on the program. Well, th that was the other thing I wanted to say, from a learning or um, is now specific to me when it comes to services. Oftentimes, the vaguer your service, the harder it is to sell. And so, one of the things I learned o over the years of doing this was shifting away from selling social media strategy. Because people are like, well, they they couldn't get their head around like, is that how big is that? How small is that? Mm -hmm. Or the proverbial or cliche, how long is a piece of string? Once we devised programs and with of different tiers with different you know things, so similar to software, we have package level one, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. has the following services included. Package two has you know enhanced service. Package three. And so, and they have different prices. Right. And so it became much easier for people to look at, oh, I want that package because there was clarity around it right. versus, okay. you know, do you want strategy package level one? People like, there's no way to, to like to break strategy down, strategy consulting down on a spectrum. But if you turn it into, forget about strategy, we have social media management monthly social media management programs and these and different levels of those programs of support. Yeah. So do you want the bronze package, the silver or the gold? Yeah. And it and makes it easier, like you said, to, for folks to just kind of like wrap their head around every single package, uh, pretty much. Well, you're making it easier for them and you're making it easier for yourself mm -hmm. because, uh, uh, selling the, just selling strategy it's too vague. Uh, it's hard to latch on to. And so you end up, um, sometimes can be you, can, hour, you can over, you can over pitch, you can over explain. Yeah. True. True. 
Um, cool. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the episode. Last but not least, where can people find you if they want to hear, learn more about yourself or Volterra? Uh, they, well, VolteraDigital.com. Uh, I'm A. Jenkins on Twitter. Uh, it's Volterra Digital on Twitter uh, as well. And then they obviously can find me on LinkedIn. It's LinkedIn, uh, just uh, Andrew Jenkins, or I think it's LinkedIn.com slash IN slash Andrew J. Jenkins. But just search me on LinkedIn. It should come up on the first page. Awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it.